hoping to get through Romans chapter 10 and into, uh, if not through most of 11 tonight. Uh, I'm excited to jump into these last, really these two chapters here are going to close out uh, the doctrine that we see here in the book of Romans and then 12 through 16 uh, will be uh, God's word on how to live out everything that we learned through the first 11 chapters uh, of Romans. And so tonight we're going to talk about Israel's rejection of the gospel of salvation through Christ Jesus. And we're going to start out right at the top of verse number one. And it says, Behold, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, go ahead and stop right there at the end of verse number three. Paul uh, just like in the previous chapters, he begins to share with us and is compelled to relate his heart to us regarding his fellow Jewish man. He starts out right out of the gate, my heart's desire. Bam, right there. He goes right to it for us. And Paul does not rejoice uh, that the Jews uh, have stumbled at the stumbling, st stumbling stone as what we saw in Romans chapter 9, the end of Romans chapter 9. But his heart's desire is to translate into something that's concrete in front of the people to say that my, my heart's desire is that I have been seeking the Lord in prayer for you. Not just you as an individual, not just you as a church, but every Jew who is labeled in the, the body life of Israel. Now Paul didn't just care about something, he prayed for it. Don't miss that. He didn't just care about, have you, have you ever said that to someone? Like, I, I, I really care about that too, right? Have you ever said that to anybody, maybe your spouse or your child, and maybe you were just saying it because you wanted to end the conversation, or you were just like, I, that resonates with me, but you never really did anything about it? Or what about on the other side of it where someone tells you something that's going on in, in their life, and you're like, I'll be praying for you, and then you forgot to pray? Anybody ever find themselves there before, right? Paul is saying, my heart's desire is that you would be saved, and that's what I've been praying for for you. And I haven't stopped praying for that. It's something that I have continuously had in my thoughts and upon my lips for you as a people. Yeah, go ahead. I don't believe that that would be Paul at all. And then the next part, when you talk about prayer, um, I have the understanding now that the significance of prayer is whenever two or more are gathered together in prayer, I believe that everybody answers. But what if that prayer is not of the will of God? Yes, no. So, but the, the addition part to that is you talk about Paul, or talks about yep. praying, but he wouldn't have been praying by himself. Or was he talking about his public prayer, or his prayer by himself? He's talking about all things that encapsulate his prayer life. Okay. Just... So I want to just throw something out there to you. 
Um, yes, the word of God does say that where two or more are gathered, and he speci- specifically says, in my name. Yes. Right, in my name. Yes. Now, I have to tell you something. That does not discount the individual's prayer life. That does not discount. Meaning that I may be praying for something specifically in my prayer life that God may answer in the way that he sees fit. That doesn't mean that it's, not gonna, that it's only going to come to fruition if I have somebody else praying alongside of me. It may still come to fruition while I'm praying alone. And so Paul is just specifying that in my prayer life, salvation for you is always upon my lips. Salvation for these people, which it goes back to what I asked you two weeks ago, right? And I know it seems like an eternity ago and a lot has transpired in that two-week period. But two weeks ago, we closed out by saying, when was the last time you got on your face before the Lord with a holy sorrow and grief for the soul of a lost person? That's how we closed out two weeks ago. Right, And so Paul is, is here and he's saying, I'm praying for salvation for you while I'm also readily recognizing that Israel has a zeal for God. Paul said, I have a zeal for the Lord, or they have a zeal for the Lord, but he recognized that that zeal was not according to knowledge, meaning that there was no personal relationship with God. And so there it is with religious people. They have a knowledge of God, but that knowledge has not affected the actions of the individual. It has not affected the way that that person lives. If you guys come back, which I know most of you will be, but if you're here on Sunday, we will be talking about that very thing, that godly wisdom is not something that we know, it's something that we do. It's something that we do. And so Paul is saying, these are the religious people, and this is why they have gone astray. They've walked away from the Lord because they had a knowledge of God, but it did not affect the way that they lived in their life. Think about it like this. Uh, the, The Jews had plenty of zeal for what they were doing, but they had very little knowledge. And I use the term knowledge as in relational experience. Relational experience. And that's a perfect description If you think about it, um, it's unique that Paul is the one who's saying this because that's the perfect description of how Paul was before uh, the, the road to Damascus. He had a knowledge of God, but it never affected and impacted the way that he lived life. He knew who God was. He knew what the law was, but he was living in a way that persecuted Christians, not in a way that would bring glory and honor to God himself with the way that he lived. And so Saul right? Saul of Tarsus was a person, he was a murderer of Christians. In fact, if you go back to the book of Acts, you will see that he was present when Stephen was stoned and he didn't intervene. In, in fact, he was the one that was giving the okay to kill Stephen. He was standing there watching it occur, but when he was confronted, when he had that experience with God, what happened? What happened when Paul experienced God? Yes, yes. Why do you think Paul said that godly sorrow worketh repentance, but earthly sorrow brings death? Why did he say that? Because he, he had that experience in his own life. And so it's remarkable that Paul found something good to say about the Jewish people who persecuted him mercilessly. He's saying, I see that you have a zeal for the things of God. And at least you have a zeal for the things of God. But he's... Did you guys catch what he said? He said, you attempted to establish your own righteousness. 
your own righteousness. And so the effort that Paul is talking about from Israel shows a lack, really, uh, of experiential knowledge and that they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, I just want to stop for just a moment. You guys understand when we use the term ignorant, what we mean, right? Yes? Are you confused? Is anyone confused? Because I'm not up here saying that Paul was saying that they were stupid. That's not, you guys, so I just want to make sure that we all have an understanding of what the word ignorant means. Lack of knowledge, yes, would be a perfect way to put it. Thank you. Now, Paul demonstrated to us in the first several chapters of Romans how futile it is for the human to attempt to create or establish his own righteousness. And so plainly put, the deeds of the law, there is no flesh that can be justified, is what he said at the beginning of Romans. And so Israel had a lack of knowledge of God, a lack of knowledge. But that wasn't their only problem, though. They also had a moral problem. Paul said that they did not submit to the righteousness of God, meaning that they would not ever allow for him to be Lord of their life. They wouldn't submit to what they knew was true. And so people cannot come to Jesus without the right information about the gospel. You guys agree with me on that? People can't come to Jesus without the right information about the gospel, but information alone is not enough to save that person. It's not. There must be a radical submission to the righteousness of God. There has to be. It means putting away what I believe to be right of myself, laying it all down so I can take on the righteousness of Christ through salvation. That's the only way. And the only way that it occurs is through submission. I can't take that from Christ. There's no way. I can't obtain it through works, right? We already talked about how works come as an after effect of the gospel. And so we can't obtain it any other way except for through submission. And so, yeah, go ahead. Sure. So they understand, yeah, when you, so for me personally, yep. when you say come to Jesus, it's okay if I say allow him, decide to allow him into my heart. Correct. Right. So right, so remember how we, we talked two weeks ago about the difference between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? God sovereignly knows who will accept and reject, but man still has to accept or reject when they hear the gospel. And, right. And so, so it, ties, it ties in beautifully. Why? Because, because again, we, we cannot neglect here in, in this portion of Scripture the emphasis on personal responsibility. There is still a personal responsibility. And so all of Paul's teachings, and I'm going to bring up that word again that we all like, all of Paul's teachings about God's election, okay, and the right to choose does not diminish God, a man's responsibility from responding to that choice. And so there is a contrast that we see in Scripture between God's righteousness 
and the attempt of man to produce his own righteousness. So look with me now at verse number four. Is everyone following along? I haven't lost anybody yet, have I? Perfect. So it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So stop right there for just a moment. Jesus, Paul said, is the end of the law for those who believe. He's the end of the law. So that the law ends for the believer in the sense that our obedience to the law is no longer the basis for our relationship with God. That's what he's saying. The law has, has not come to an end in the sense that it no longer reflects God's standard. It's come to the end that it's no longer the thing that rescues and saves the sinner and allows for them to go to heaven. This is what Paul is saying. And so the law of Moses from the Old Testament, right? So the law came to us in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. Okay? Mostly it came in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But we see most of it occur in the five books, right? And, and Moses' law that he gave to us made the path to righteousness through the law plain, right? It made that path very clear. This is how you follow God, is what he, he gave it to the Israelites for. Now, if we want to live by the law, you must do the law, and you must do it completely, and you must do it perfectly. But what have we learned up to this point? It's impossible to do that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> that would be an accurate assessment for sure. And maybe not, maybe not to the extent at which we saw in the Old Testament, being that, like, for, for instance, there are no animal rituals, sacrifices that are currently occurring um, in Israel, so that would be maybe one area that's shifted. But if you if you watch and follow anything at all, uh, there are a group of people. And for those of you who came through the Revelation Bible study that we did a few months back, uh, you do know that there is a group of people who are attempting to reproduce the temple and go back to having animal sacrifices uh, in, as an atonement for sin currently going on. So. There is no deal. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, not maybe not answering that specific question, but it, I will hopefully walk us through what happens between the Gentiles and the Jews and where salvation comes. Any other questions before we move on? Yeah, go ahead, Kim. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes, I mean, it doesn't, that's, right, so that's what I was saying is that the, the law has not come to the end in the sense that it no longer shows us God's standard, right? It, does, it hasn't come to the, the end as it no longer shows us our need for a Savior. It's just not the thing that saves us, would be the most simplistic way. It's there to show us God's standard. It's there to point to our need for a Savior, but it cannot save us. 
So think about it this way would be the easiest, the easiest thing. Grace, right? It says, Paul tells us that we have been saved by faith or by grace through faith, right? In Ephesians 2. So some churches have a tendency to lean heavy on the grace side, none on the law. Some churches, as ones that I've shared with you uh, where my upbringing was, tended to lean way over here on the law side with zero grace, right? But law and grace are the Siamese twins of Scripture. You can't take grace and leave the law. You can't take the law and leave grace. They work together to bring about complete salvation through Jesus Christ. The law points us to grace. Grace saves. You guys tracking with me so far? It's very... Like, thank you for bringing that up, Amy, and yes, thank you, Kim, for that. So, if, if righteousness, if there is righteousness of faith, and it is based on Jesus, then we don't have to work to get to Jesus, okay? We don't have to work. If it's not as if we ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss to gain Jesus. Instead of having to go to all of these great lengths, is what Paul is saying. You don't have to do all of these things to achieve the righteousness of the law. We immediately receive righteousness because of salvation. Immediately. In fact, I was talking with someone earlier today uh, about what Paul said about the righteousness uh, of man once we have received salvation. So through him... Through Jesus, we have received Jesus's righteousness. So when God looks at you and I, he no longer sees the dirty, rotten, filthy sinner that we are. He sees his son. He sees his son. Right? That doesn't mean that we're, that we're not a... That, that doesn't mean that we're not... Remember what I said? We're all dirt bags, right? That doesn't mean that we're not a sinner... But in the eyes of God, we are seen as his son. We are seen as righteous, as righteous because of his son. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes. Right. Yes. That was a great and a beautiful picture. He stepped in front of, which is why we have a mediator in Jesus Christ, right? What does the mediator do? Goes between. Goes between you and I, right? Yeah, go ahead. Correct. Did you guys hear what he said? He said, there's no requirement. And I was not sure that anyone was ever going to bring this up, but I'm glad that you did. He said, there is no requirement that we be able to read. So in the, in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, everything was passed on through hearing. It was somebody else speaking it out loud. Um, I love what Paul, what did Paul say, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so it was other people, typically the priests, the rabbis of that day, the teachers, the spiritual leaders of that day are what shared. And in this case, it was Paul sharing the gospel. So yes, I love that, um, that he specifically talks about hearing oftentimes in the Bible, because at that point, there were not many people who could read. And even in the New Testament, this was not recorded. Um, if you guys have been here through our book uh, series study of the book of James, we know that the first recorded book of the, of the, the Bible um, of the New Testament was James, and it didn't occur until 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so uh, many of the things that are occurring here in the New Testament, uh, they would not have had anything uh, to read from. It was all word of mouth, uh, which is why it's, it's crucial to us to understand and know uh, that there are hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses that will concur the things that we have in Scripture that are recorded historically uh, that we don't specifically see notated in Scripture um, at that time. But you can go back and look at all of those, those records. So look now with me at verse number 9, unless there's um, anything else. That, okay, God's righteousness, we're going to see, is gained by faith here. So look at verse number 9. And it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." I just want to stop uh, for just a moment. Uh, we do not gain God's righteousness uh, by works. Instead, we gain it by confessing and believing. By confessing and believing. If you have a physical Bible um, or you take notes, I want you to write that down. Confessing and believing. Confessing and believing. You have to confess and believe in the work and the person of Jesus Christ is what Paul said. Confession has with it the idea of agreement. I'm agreeing with vocally uh, what I know and believe to be true. So when we confess, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, we agree with what God has already told us about Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're agreeing with what Jesus said about himself during his earthly ministry. It means that we recognize that Jesus is God that he is the Messiah, and that his work on the cross is the only way to salvation. It's the only way. Now, I just want to stop for a moment, though, and I, I want to touch on something. Um, I, I was talking with my wife about this and, and debating on whether or not I should say anything like this, but it, it needs to be said because we need to have a very clear understanding of this. Uh, I've been in ministry for uh, almost 15 years. And in that 15 years of ministry, I've traveled uh, around the globe. Um, I've been on many missions trips. I've connected with many pastors, many churches, many Christians, or people that would call themselves Christians. One of the things that I think I've heard the most come from people is when I ask, uh, when someone tells me they're a Christian and I have time to sit with them, I want to hear their story, right? Am I the only one? Um, I want to hear, like, tell me, tell me your story. Give me a synopsis of your testimony. Uh, one of the things that is very scary to me as a pastor, I've heard over and over and over again, is someone will tell me something along these lines. Well, I'm a Christian because I had a spiritual experience. I'm a Christian because of, and then they fill in the blank. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of the testimony, right? When you ask that person, like, recall a time for me where you believed these things and then you confessed them. Oftentimes those people could not pinpoint anything down. Now, I'm not up here to say I'm God and I know that they're not saved or they are saved, but the Bible is very, very, very clear to us. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. 
if the believing in the heart and the confessing of the mouth has not occurred, I would be working out my salvation with fear and trembling a little further than what I've already taken it. To say that we have had a quote-unquote spiritual experience and that way I know I'm going to heaven, please, please, please hear me as a pastor. My heart goes out to you that we need to sit and have some real serious biblical conversation. It doesn't mean that you can't be met with the overwhelming presence of God, but that overwhelming presence of God if you're submitting to that, leads to a belief in these things, right? A belief in Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, all the way through it. There's a belief in those things, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross to cover our sins, that he was the perfect lamb, that his sacrifice was, was good enough in the eyes of God to allow for us to live peaceably. If that has not occurred in your life, a belief in a confession, then we need to talk. I'm not saying just anybody here, but I'm talking about as a, as a believer, and this, this goes back to conversation that we had at the end of the Revelation study where we talked about how many of you are confident that you could lead somebody to the Lord, that you're confident that you could share the gospel. And we had some hands that were raised. We had some that were like, well, I would need help here. And then we had some that were like, I'm just not. And so real quick, um, I'm hoping here in the fall that I will be doing a class, How to Share Your Faith. How to Share Your Faith. Okay? Um, it might actually be the next study that we cover um, going off of this since, you know, we're walking through some of the best stuff we got here in the Bible for us. But um, if you share the gospel, if you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you don't get to the part where you talk about belief of your heart in these things and confession with your mouth, then you may have just truly had a false conversion if that person said they believed. Because belief coupled with confession is what brings about the righteousness of God. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Remember what... Right? So do the demons. Sure. Right, what did we, a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at James, what, it, what was the argument, right? Well, I'll show you my, my works, you show me your faith. What was the other argument? Well, I believe the Lord is one. And what did James say? So do the demons. So do the demons. But what did the demons do? It said the demons trembled. The demons actually responded to the Lord being one. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yes, Laura, and then we'll come right here to Sandra. <laughs> Those are always fun. Sure. Sure. 
one thing and then we'll come right here. I just want to respond to you. Um, oftentimes, I will reflect back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal? And Did we not work miracles in your name? Well, what, did he, what will he say? Well, depart from me, for I did not know you. There was no personal relationship there, right? But he goes on to not just say, depart from me, for I did not know you. He calls them men of lawlessness. The men of lawlessness piece is crucial to what Jesus said because it is a man who did not follow the words of Christ who did not follow the words of a lawless man. So in, in our life, if the word of God tells us that salvation comes by faith in confessing and believing, then that's how salvation comes. It's confessing and believing. It's not confessing and believing in an addition to, right? That's why we differ a lot of times from like Catholicism or, or, or the Lutheran church because they have Jesus coupled with works uh, for salvation, right? And so uh, scripture is very clear on where that comes. I just wanted to ensure that we as a church uh, have a very clear understanding of that. So yeah, go ahead, Sandra. Sure. Sure. Yes. Yes. I, I love that Luke, right? So the, the gospel writers all wrote from a different perspective in their own particular way. One of the things that Luke points out is lest you repent, you all shall perish. You all shall perish, lest you repent. And so I thank you. I, I thank you for saying that because it's so, uh, there. there is a, a crying out, a, a belief in our need of a Savior, and that confession should drive us to say, Lord, please, please forgive my unholiness, right? I mean, I love, I love what's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6, right? When Isaiah encountered the Lord, what was his first response? He fell on his face and he said, woe is me who is a man of unclean lips, Immediately there was a response. And so um, I just wanted to ensure that we, we knew that. Um, Paul records for us uh, when we confess, he says, Lord Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, depending on the version that you have. And it's important. That word Lord comes to us from the Greek word kyrios, kyrios. It's a word that we've looked at over several times. It's not going to hit the screen for you. Uh, but it means that he is a, a rank with God, meaning that he is the same as God, that he is a supreme place in your life is what that word means. And it's the same way uh, when, when a, a Jewish boy would, uh, would call a, a, a man rabbi or teacher, Rabbi or teachers, the same, it carries with it the same weight. And, and when, when we call, uh, when we call Lord, Lord, when we call Christ, uh, Lord over our lives, we're pledging an implicit obedience to the things that he calls us to do, implicit obedience to him. But we also have to believe that. You know, some wonder why Paul didn't mention the crucifixion in this passage at all. 
Uh, in fact, when I first started to, to study this, I, I wondered why. But when Paul emphasizes the need to believe that God has raised him from the dead, it's not that we believe the resurrection as opposed to the cross, but it encompasses all of the work that Jesus did from the beginning of his life until the end of it. And so, um, how do I say this? Um, a mere intellect, uh, a mere intellectual agreement with the facts of the cross and the resurrection is not enough. Just to have a knowledge of them is not enough. Paul is saying you must believe it in your heart. Even, even that belief is not enough without accompanied action. It has to be belief and confession. Belief and confession. And for with the heart, Paul said, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And so the two together result in righteousness and salvation. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes, um, I totally agree. We should not anno- ignore, though, how, how scandalously simple uh, this is. Um, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, I've been in, in church circles uh, where a pastor or church leader has said, you have to say these specific things. Um, uh, listen, I, I don't, I don't want to down um, anybody of yesteryear that had an impact on, in our, on my life, my family, in any way, uh, but I remember as a child, um, our pastor, uh, our, our Sunday school teachers uh, would often tell us, um, you had to pray the prayer that was on this slip of paper in order to be saved. And if you did not pray that prayer, uh, that it was not true. Um, and I remember um, over and over and over um, having the thought that, like, is there some power in those five lines over me in a heartfelt uh, moment with the Lord? Like, is there, do, do I not have the power to pray my own words unto God? Do I not have the power to pray God's words back to him? Um, and, and really, it, it comes to a point where we have to understand and, and realize um, there's nothing wrong uh, with a, a pastor or a church leader helping someone uh, to understand prayer. Uh, but to have a belief that if you don't pray these exact words that salvation will not come um, is false. Um, it, is a, it is a false leading uh, of someone uh, to the Lord. And so we have to understand that there is an affront um, by, by the flesh and by the enemy to get us to become legalistic in our thinking uh, about what something has to look like and putting parameters on that from a, a fleshly or a human perspective where God has already laid out for us. Belief accompanied by confession brings about redemption for the, for the person, uh, for the man, the woman, the child, the teenager. Yeah, go ahead. Where's the Apostles' Creed? Oh. <laughs> the Apostles' Creed. Do you guys all know what the Apostles' Creed is? Yes? 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 If you don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, come see me afterwards. Come see me afterwards. 
Sure. Sure. Uh, be, it becomes religious. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so the Apostles' Creed essentially, in a nutshell, is stating the beliefs of the church. We believe in God the Father. We believe in, in you know, Jesus Christ, His Son. Uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, the three are one. Um, and, and then people get all kind of crazy because it says that we believe in the, the Holy Catholic Church. And then people are like, oh my gosh, they just called us Catholic. And that's not what it meant, but <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, heart posture. Heart posture is so important um, in our relationship with the Lord. Now, um, Paul makes it very clear to us here in Scripture that there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. And so the, we must, again, emphasize and note the emphasis on human responsibility. It says he is Lord over all to all who call. There's an action uh, that comes uh, upon the man that we have a responsibility to respond to. Now, if we go back to Romans chapter 9, right? So last chapter, two weeks ago, we might think if we were to only have Romans chapter 9 and not have Romans chapter 10, we would think that salvation is God's doing uh, alone. But from Romans chapter 10, we might think that salvation is man's doing alone. If we just have both of them separated. But together, we see the matter from each perspective. We see God's responsibility in, or God's sovereignty in chapter 9. We see man's responsibility in chapter 10. And so when we're studying scripture, especially the book of Romans, uh, never, ever, ever deduct from one portion of one chapter what they meant until you've gotten through the whole thing. Because Paul goes back and he enlightens a little bit more as to what he already shared in the previous chapters. Now, uh, look with me at verse number 14. Because then Paul begins to talk about how there is a necessity for preaching the gospel. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Uh, goes back to what you were saying, Fernandre, right? And, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of of those. Paul rightly uh, observes that it all goes back to the preaching of the gospel. He goes right back to it. And preachers must be sent both by God and by the Christian community at large. And so how shall they hear without a preacher, Paul said. It's a question that's well stated. And conceivably, God could have chosen any means for the message of salvation to come. 
He could have chosen anything. He could have chosen angelic messengers or directly working without a human preacher, but that's not what he chose. He chose the normal way of bringing people to Jesus, and that's through word of mouth. That's through speaking what is true. And, and I love, though, um, I love the, the phrase that he uses about people who speak the gospel. He said their feet are beautiful. Their feet are beautiful. Now, um, sometimes my mind automatically runs back to the very logical and obvious pictures and thoughts. And uh, when I first studied this out, I was probably a freshman in college, my first, my first year of Bible college. And we went through this portion of scripture. And I have a thing against feet. I don't, I don't, I don't like feet at all. Um, and my wife and I were talking about, about how it, he uses that phrase, how beautiful are the feet. And I was like, I could not wrap my head around why he would say such things. Why would Paul say how beautiful are the feet? But the, the feet speak to the activity, uh, the, the motion, uh, the, the progress, and those who are active in moving God's work forward. It's the one who is, is constantly uh, living out uh, the gospel by what he says and does. How beautiful are the feet of the ones who bring truth or, or good news to other people. Glad tidings of good things. Now, the, the salvation that Isaiah prophesied about in the Old Testament um, could not be salvation through works or the law. Uh, if you go back and study out Isaiah, um, he, he says you can be right before God, not if you work hard enough, but because of Christ who will die for you, who will, who will die for you and for, for me. So um, the, the gospel that says that we have to work is not a gospel of peace. A gospel uh, uh, that says we have to work is not one that brings glad tidings of good things. In fact, it brings quite the opposite. And so the gospel that brings good, good tidings or glad tidings of good things, it comes from salvation through Christ alone. Salvation through Christ alone. But the prophet, though, foretold of the rejection that was going to occur uh, of the gospel if we go back. And so look, because now Paul is going to begin to share with us portions of scripture from the Old Testament. So he says in verse 16, he says, for Isaiah says, sorry, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out all over the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation and foolish nation. I will make you angry. Verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold to say, have I been found by those who did not seek me? Have I shown myself to those who did not ask for me? But Israel, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, I want us to just stop for a moment um, here at the end of chapter 10 because he, he begins to show us now what the prophets of the Old Testament already said about what was going to occur in his day. So if salvation is so simple, if it's available to all who trust in the person and the work of Jesus, then why does Israel seem to be cast off from God? Why? 
then? Then why why in, in this portion of scripture do they they seem to be cast off? Yeah. In a sense, yes. Has to do with something that we just talked about a few minutes ago. I will I'll take that, right? They didn't believe. There was no belief in God. That's why they seemed to be cast off. Uh, they did not trust in God's word. They didn't trust in God's word through Isaiah. They didn't trust in God's word through any of the other major or minor prophets of the Old Testament. They didn't even trust in God's word through those who were speaking to them now, i.e. Paul. They would have heard James being one of the first uh, pastors uh, of Jerusalem. They would have heard of Timothy, of Titus, of Philemon. They would have heard of all of the men who were bringing forth, and women, if you go to... um, Oh my word, I just completely lost their name. Ah, it'll come back to me. Um, Aquila and Priscilla. Um, Priscilla was a, a one who brought forth the gospel. Same thing with Lois and Eunice, uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother. Uh, these were all people who were used to bring forth, but they rejected. They did not believe in the reports that came from God's word, from God's truth. And therefore they were not saved. Saving faith comes through hearing the word of God. It uh, goes back to what Fanandre was saying earlier and what, what Laura was saying um, after that. Um, and so he brings about even uh, beyond Isaiah, brings forth another testimony from Psalm chapter 19. And in the, the quotation proves that the word of the gospel went forth and Israel heard it. Uh, the writer of Psalm 19 says they will hear and they will reject. It makes, it makes man and woman and child in Israel at that time more accountable for the rejection of the good news. Um, how, how do I get you to... Um, we, know, we know from the end of the Bible that there will be people who will continuously reject the word of God. We know that. Um, and we should never, ever, ever uh, think, um, woe is the individual who rejected the word of God. Uh, we should always go back and ask, God, have mercy upon that man or that woman or that child or that teenager's soul. Uh, the person who knowingly and willingly rejects the word of God according to scripture, what? Is destined to hell. Is destined to hell. Now, God, now I want, I, want you to, I want you to please remember something, right? We know that Peter says that it was not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. We know that. But there are people who will reject truth. They will. And so this testimony here is saying that Israel is responsible for their own rejection of what truth they have been given. And so then Paul's like, well, what if I bring out a testimony from the book of Deuteronomy? And God tells Israel that he would bring close others close to him and that they would make Israel jealous. So who are those others? Gentiles. So everyone who is not Jewish. Everyone who is not Jewish. And so Israel still ignores the truth of God's word as we begin to see Gentiles grafted into the church. You see that happen. So then he brings back to Isaiah chapter 65, and Paul says, again, here's a bold prophecy and a warning that was given by Isaiah thousands of years ago, and Israel ignored it then and was still ignoring it in Paul's day. And he goes, this here is making you even more accountable for your rejection. 
You knew this was coming. Now, isn't it strange that Israel, for the most part, okay, rejected their own Messiah? Isn't that strange? I mean, when you, th- when you honestly think about it, it's strange that they rejected their own Messiah, but it was foretold that it was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen, so, meaning that it did not surprise God. It did not surprise the people. It did not surprise the prophets that Israel did exactly what was prophesied about them to do. And so then he closes out with Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2, I believe. And he tells uh, and God's assessment, so to speak, of their disobedience. The assessment at the end, right? The assessment of Messiah rejecting Israel, and he says that they are disobedient and a contrary people. Disobedient and a contrary people, and all the more so because of their great responsibility before God. And so, I have a question for us. Um, How many of you um, remember back to a time where that was you? where I rejected the gospel. I'm not asking for stories. I want you to just think for a moment. I rejected the gospel. Okay? Now I want you to jump all the way forward with me to where you are right now. Can you fathom the amount of grace and mercy that the Lord gave to you from that point until now already being a child of God? It's unfathomable from our, our finite perspective. What if, what if every time we sought the Lord on behalf of somebody else, those were the terms in which we thought? What if those were the terms? My heart, my heart's desire is to have salvation prayers upon my lips for the lost and hurting. Not just the lost and hurting that are connected to me, but the lost and hurting around the globe. And every moment that I interact with somebody that I know to not be a believer, my first thought is not just to pray for their salvation, but to thank God for mine. To thank God for mine and all of the grace and mercy that came and still comes continuously in our lives. So, let me just ask this question and then we'll dive into the next chapter because we still have a little bit of time together. Um, when was the last time you thanked God for his grace and mercy in your life? When was the last time? You don't have to answer. I don't want to know. Please don't incriminate yourself. Um, So let's jump to chapter 11. Yeah, go ahead.
sure. Someone once told me that the gospel is the most inclusive, exclusive truth there is. It's the most inclusive, exclusive truth there is. It means that it, it will include all people, but exclusive meaning that it, it must look this way in your life. It must radically change and affect you. And in turn, I think it was probably two or three years ago, um, a mentor of mine um, and this has gone all over. I believe he got it from probably another pastor or somewhere on Facebook. Um, but he, he said to us one time in a, in a training, and we were, sharing, we were getting ready to go out and share the gospel with people. And we had someone raise their hands, and they're like, well, what do we do if we encounter this type of person or this type of person or this type of a situation? And um, our, our pastor was always very, uh, very straightforward. Um, that's what I loved about him. And he said to us, and I will never forget this, he said, Jesus didn't sit with sinners to, um, to be inclusive of their sin. He sat with sinners so that sinners would change. He sat with sinners so that they would change. And as, as a disciple of Christ, right, um, well, to be honest with you, and I, I don't even know that we should use the term Christian we should use the term disciple. Uh, we are a disciple. We have given everything up in our life to follow Christ. In fact, the term Christian was used as a derogatory term for those who loved Jesus. A disciple was someone who gave up everything in their life to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And so for, for the believer, um, we are to be a disciple. And if we are to be a disciple, then we are to do exactly as Christ did, uh, knowing that we will still be sinners in the process and that he wasn't. Uh, but we, we can, we can include people, but not, not with the, the, um, the hope of just being inclusive so that they can be how they are, right? The culture says, uh, come, come and be a part and we'll let you stay as you are. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says we will take you wherever you're at, but we, we want we want to see you change because we love you more than that. We love you enough to want to see you be different. And so I just, I'm going to make a statement here uh, because there have been people who have said uh, different things uh, about me and the, the things that I say from our pulpit and the way that I'm very outspoken about abortion and about homosexuality. Um, and how I will always stand on those truths. First of all, I want you to know that I believe those things, and those things will never change in my life. The second thing I also need you to know is that if a woman um, or a teenage girl um, 
walked through those doors and she had an abortion as a part of her story, or a young man or a young woman or an adult man or adult woman that walked through those doors who was a homosexual, I would have been the first person to embrace that person. Um, I love all people, but I love you enough for you to not stay where you're at. And so as a church, we are a church that will take anybody from any walk of life, but we love you enough for you to not stay where you are. Why? Because God loves you enough to not keep you where you're at. And so as a church, we have to be a people that, that shows love and shows grace and shows mercy uh, to people, but we also have to be a, a church that still stands on truth. We have to be a church that is unwavering in our belief and not just in our belief but why we believe what we believe we have to be that church um, a, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways the man who stands on truth um, is the one who follows in the footsteps of Christ church we have to be a, a church uh, of truth tellers uh, but but grace and love givers at the same time. And goes back to what I was saying earlier. You can't take grace without, without law. The law is the truth. You can't take the grace and the law apart from each other. They have to be together. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> You're gonna get it. Oh, yeah. Yep. So there, and I'll use this, I'll use a personal story as an example of what you're saying. Um, right before COVID hit um, and everything shut down, uh, my wife and I uh, were in Florida, and um, my my wife was wanting to step away from her job and be a stay-at-home mom and homeschool our kids full-time, and um, we had kind of been sharing the, the role, and uh, we wanted to go on vacation, um, and so I told my wife, I said, well, what if I take on a second part-time job uh, so we have some extra money so we can go and do these things that we wanted to do, and we had decided that that was going to happen and it became a, a thing and um, I came on staff um, at our local Olive Garden uh, around the corner from where we lived. I was wait staff at Olive Garden and um, came on and they knew that I, I worked on staff at a church. Uh, they knew I was a Christian um, and they made a, a point uh, in our orientation to specify uh, while I was on the clock I could not talk 
uh, about God. Um, they made it a, a very clear point. Um, and so initially I wasn't sure if I was going to stay and I told my wife, should, should I stay? Like, I, I don't, I, I want to make sure that, you know, I respect the authority that's been placed over me. Um, but what if something comes up? I can't, like, if something comes up, I can't bite my tongue, right? Like, I don't want to lie to somebody or I'm be like, I, we can have this conversation later. You know, I just, and she goes, well, she said, just, she said, go. And if something comes up, just tell them you'll talk to them when you're off the clock. Um, so I said, okay. So I go, and three or four months into it, um, I worked alongside of the same two people um, every single day we opened, um, a man and a woman. And both of these individuals were non-Christians. And about three months into working together, uh, the one individual, his name was Alex um, and Samantha. These are the two people that I worked with. Alex was a short um, Hispanic kid uh, who grew up with a very uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic background, uh, but was not a believer, didn't like to go to church. Samantha was a Wiccan. Um, she, she dabbled in witchcraft. And um, never like creepy, weird, like you never knew about it, but it had come up in conversation. And about three months into working there, um, Alex came to me one day and he goes, how come you never complain about anything? And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you don't complain about doing your job. And I was like, well, because I'm here to do my job. Like, I, I get paid to do that. It's like, is, is that just not a normal thing? Like, I don't understand. And he goes, well, anytime the boss says anything at all, you're just like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. You just do it. You don't say anything. You just get right to it. He's like, nobody has to clean up after you when you leave. He's like, this is just really strange. And I was like, well, because I want to set a good example for the people, not just because you guys know that I work on staff at a church, but because I'm a Christian, because I love the Lord. And I want people to know, um, not because I'm better than you, but this is just how I put forth my life. This is what my family does. Hold on. No. <laughs> Two weeks later, Samantha asked me the same question, but in a little bit of a different way. Which led to about a month after that, uh, she told one of our cooks in the back um, who would, had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And they had given him four months to live. And um, his name was Mark. And, and she told Mark, well, maybe Josh will pray with you. And he came to me uh, while I was on the clock and said, will you pray with me? Um, I know that you know this Jesus guy, and I want to know because I'm about to go, and I don't know what's going to happen to me after I'm gone. I remember telling him I couldn't pray with him at that moment because I didn't want to get in trouble. I got off the clock. We stepped into the back room. I prayed with that individual who came to know the Lord a week later because of somebody else. I just planted the seed. I just did what I felt was right. I got fired shortly after that. Uh, shortly after that because I prayed with somebody off the clock. But it all came back to Josh didn't complain. All of it stemmed back to Josh didn't complain. The story was not about me. The story was not about me not complaining. The story was about someone recognized something different about my life. And as Christians, that should be the story of our life. That should be the story of our life. People should see you and be like, why are you different? Why do they do the things that they do? Why do they go to church? 
Why do they listen to that kind of music? Why do they avoid that kind of music or avoid that kind of, of movie or TV show? Why? Well, because we live our life to honor and glorify God. That's why. Uh, uh, yeah, glory. That's good. That's good. Let's jump into chapter number 11 for just a few minutes. So initially I wanted to get the Romans Bible study over by the end of August, but that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> so chapter number 11, it says, um, and I ask then, has God rejected his people? I want us to just stop right there. Paul's question makes sense at this point in Romans. Um, at this very second uh, of Scripture, it makes sense because if Israel's rejection of the gospel was somehow both consistent with God's eternal plan and Israel's own choosing, uh, then does that mean that Israel's fate is settled? Is Israel's fate settled? Is there no possibility? So this goes back to what you asked a while ago. Is there no possibility of restoration? Um, no possibility at all. Well, Paul explains the answer then in the rest of the verse. So go back. I asked then, has God rejected his people? What does he say? By no means, or, or of course not. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Don't ever forget that. Um, Paul was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. It will come up in Bible trivia somewhere down the line before you go. He's a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's faith in Jesus, okay, as the Messiah, proved that there were some Jews that were chosen by God who embraced the gospel and some who rejected and so whenever we want evidence of God's work, we could and should look at our own life first. Did you guys catch that? Whenever we want evidence of God's work, we should look at our own life first. What has he done in my life? I used to tell our, our youth leaders that one of the best ways uh, to look at the spiritual growth in your life is to see how different you were from one year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. I don't look this look the same internally, spiritually, I am different. It's a way for us to be able to not so much as measure our spiritual growth, but to see the areas in which God has had you uh, grow and change in your life. And Paul is saying, that's what I did. I looked, when I wanted to see the evidence of God's work, I looked at my own life. Here I am. I was a persecutor of Christians, and now I'm one that's bringing forth the gospel. Something has changed in my life. Uh, look now at verse number two, because he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God again against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished their altars, and I am 
uh, I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So two, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now stop right there. In Paul's day, Israel as a group generally rejected the Messiah as a, as a whole group. Yet a substantial remnant embraced the gospel of Christ. And God has often worked in Israel through a faithful remnant all the way back into the Old Testament uh, of Scripture. Things were so bad. Think about this. Things were so bad that Elijah prayed against his own people. They were that bad. Elijah thought that God had cast off the nation and he was the only one left serving the Lord. In fact, if you go back and read Elijah's story, Elijah said, I want to die. He's praying for death to come upon him. But God shows him, in fact, there is a substantial remnant. There are 7,000 others who were following after me. And though it was only a remnant, it was actually there. There were others. You know, we often think that God needs a lot of people to do a great work, but often he does a lot of work through a small group of people, through a small group of people. And that small group then turns into a large group of people uh, from that, from that small remnant. And so though not many Jews in Paul's days embraced Jesus... Um, as the Messiah, the remnant. There was a remnant of people who did, and God will use that small group in big ways. So look now at verse number six. He said, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down uh, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And so Paul left the previous verse here, noting that the remnant was chosen according to the election of grace. Now, um, we, like I said, I will be sending out the whole uh, theological thoughts uh, piece on election um, and predestination coming up. So just hang tight with me. I'm not 100% there yet. I'm not ready to give it out to you guys yet. But he reminds us uh, of what the definition of grace is. He says that a free gift of God, not given with an eye to performance or potential in the one receiving, but out of the kindness of the giver. Grace was a free gift out of the kindness of the giver. And as principles, grace and works don't go together. If giving is of grace, it cannot be of works. And if it's of works, it cannot be of grace. And so the elect among Israel that we're seeing here, they received and they responded to the mercy of God. But the rest of them were, reject, or were hardened because they rejected truth. And so the quotations that we see here uh, are from Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69. They tell us that God gives a spirit of stupor and eyes that they should not see. And he let their eyes be darkened um, as he pleases. So if God is pleased to enlighten only a remnant of Israel at the present time, he may do so as he pleases. 
God may do so as he pleases. He's, he's sovereignly allowed to do as he pleases. You know, Charles Spurgeon called the spirit of stupor an attitude of deadness towards spiritual things. And so he's saying that the people had an attitude of deadness towards the things that were of God. And the idea is, is, is this, that there are men sitting and they're feasting comfortably at their own banquet and their very sense of safety has become their own ruin. Is what, that's what Paul is saying. It's become their own ruin. They've become so secure in their fancied safety that the enemy can come in upon them unaware. That's what happened here with Israel. The enemy came in. He led them astray. And so the Jews of Paul's day were so secure in the idea of being God's chosen people that they missed the Messiah. They missed the Messiah. And so God's plan in saving only a remnant at this present time was, was predicated by the Psalms that were written before it. They said it was going to occur and happen. So look now at verse number 11, and we'll begin to wrap this up here. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And so Paul presents it here. There is a difference between stumbling and falling. There's a difference between stumbling and falling. Israel stumbled, but they would not fall. Okay, they would not fall in a sense of being removed from God's purpose and plan in the end. You can you can recover church. You can recover from a stumble. But if you fall, you're down. Did you guys catch that? You can recover from a stumble like I still have my footing. But if you fall, you're all the way down. And so Paul is saying that Israel will recover. They will recover in time. They're not all the way down. They're still in the plans and purposes of God. But look now at verse 12. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Verse 15, for if their rejection makes the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's a beautiful picture. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And so Paul has shown that God is still working through a remnant of Israel today, but wants to make it clear that the sinning majority of Israel is not lost forever. They're not gone forever. And we should not forget that in many instances, the gospel only went out to the Gentiles after the Jewish people rejected it. Did you guys catch that? The gospel went to the Gentiles after the Jews rejected it. Remember what he said at the beginning, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so, in, in a sense, the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people was riches for the Gentiles. It was for the, so think about it this way. The Jews who rejected the gospel in Paul's day were in direct correlation with the Gentiles in this room hearing the gospel. That's crazy awesome, isn't it? 
The, the Jews who rejected the gospel in Paul's day over 2,000 years ago are directly related to why we were able to hear the gospel today and why the gospel can still go forth. It wasn't that the Jewish rejection of Jesus as a Messiah caused the Gentiles to get saved. It was that their rejection of the gospel caused the Gentiles to hear, which led to salvation. It led to salvation. So it merely gave an opportunity for the gospel to go forth in a greater capacity than what it already was. And so the Gentiles took advantage. They took advantage of hearing the gospel. They were able to hear and they received. And yet Paul's desire isn't only that the riches would be enjoyed by the Gentiles, but he wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to hear it and receive it and accept it as well. So we see this term here in Scripture, and this is where we're going to kind of close out. We see this term here in Scripture that, that the Jews uh, would be provoked by a good kind of jealousy, a good kind of jealousy, motivating the Jews to receive some of the blessing that the Gentiles were already enjoying from knowing Christ. Have you ever... Um, have you ever uh, had a, a time in your life where, we'll stop there at the end of 14. Have you ever had a time in your life where you connected with, with somebody, um, a believer, um, a, a pastor, a church leader, a woman of God in some way, um, and when you saw their life, um, you're like, I want that. I want that holy contentment that that person has. That's what Paul is talking about. I want the Jews to see the goodness of salvation through the Gentiles and have a holy discontentment to chase after that, to, to get that, to have that relationship with, with God, which then brings me to the question that I will close us in. Do we sit here as a body of believers tonight content with the Lord because of our salvation? And has that contentment brought out a holy discontentment to, to receive more truth, to receive greater change, to be sanctified to a greater, a greater degree? Are we in that place? Are we in that place? Don't answer out loud. I want, I want you to think about it. I have conversations with people quite regularly in, in counseling appointments. And one of the, the seems like consistent things that comes up is the difference between fleshly discontentment and holy discontentment. And what are those two things? As your pastor, I would stand before you saying it's okay to have a holy discontentment. It's okay to want to be greater sanctified in this life. It's okay to want to strive to have a deeper and more intimate relationship with the Lord. But a discontentment that pulls you away from those things, that's a discontentment we want to stay away from. And so where are you at tonight in your relationship with the Lord? I want to just leave you with that. We're not going to talk about it next week. Um, I just want, I want to leave you with that thought. Um, 
as we depart from here a little bit early. Um, love you guys. Thanks for coming out. I'll see you uh, Sunday as we finish up James chapter 3. And um, if you guys need anything, I'll be up here. Any questions, you guys need prayer for anything, we'll, we'll be available. Uh, we love you guys, and you are sent. <laughs>